Thank you, David, so much for leading us in that time of singing and praise. And now, my dear friends, it is time for us to devote ourselves to the study of God's holy word. Now, because today is the 4th of July, and because I prefer to continue our study of the book of Acts when we're together in person, today I thought we'd talk about the biblical notion of freedom from the Gospel of John. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open up at this time to the Gospel of John, chapter 8, and we're going to be looking at verses 31 through 36. So the Gospel of John, chapter 8, verses 31 through 36. I'll begin by reading this text as a whole. We will pause and pray over the message this morning, and then we will get into our study. So this is John chapter 8, verses 31 through 36. Follow along with me now as I read the word of God. Then Jesus said to those Jews who believed in him, If you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed. And you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. They answered him, We are Abraham's descendants and have never been in bondage to anyone. How can you say you will be made free? Jesus answered them, Most assuredly, I say to you, whoever commits sin is a slave of sin. And a slave does not abide in the house forever, but a son abides forever. Therefore, if the son makes you free, you shall be free indeed. Let's pray. Gracious Lord, we come before you this morning because we are people who stand before you in need of a word of God. Lord, we all know that we face tremendous and difficult challenges before us in our culture today. Lord, there are so many things changing, so many long-held truths that are being called into question or even rejected outright. Lord, I know there are so many things happening that are causing our lives to become increasingly uncomfortable and difficult. Lord, I know that we are pulled in so many directions. And like so many, we are tempted to respond to all of these things, to think about these things according to the flesh. But Lord, my prayer for us this morning is that you would transform us through your word, that our minds would be renewed by the word of God, that you would give us spiritual eyes to see what the truth of the matter really is. And we pray that your Holy Spirit would create hearts softened and prepared to receive a word from you this morning. We ask for the grace to obey you in whatever you command us to do. We commit this message to you and ask that you give it back to us with your blessing. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I like to refer to the 4th of July jokingly as Mel Gibson Movie Day. And that's because two of the greatest movies, in my opinion, about the 4th of July and about this idea of freedom are two Mel Gibson movies. I'm talking about The Patriot and Braveheart. 
Now, of course, the movie Patriot actually is about the American Revolutionary War, and it's got many great lines, and it's a fantastic movie. And, of course, Braveheart is not about the 4th of July. It's not about American independence, but it is about Scottish independence, and ultimately it is once again about a similar idea of freedom. Now, there's many great quotes in that movie, but let me just quote to you one that I found particularly inspiring, complete with an attempted Scottish accent. This is Mel Gibson, who is playing William Wallace, responding to the comment that if they will just kind of run and go back home, uh, they won't die rather than fight the English. And William Wallace says this, I fight and you may die, run, and you'll live, at least a while, and dying in your beds many years from now, would you be willing to trade all the days from this day to that for one chance, just one chance, to come back here and tell our enemies that they may take our lives, but they'll never take our freedom? Well, I don't know. You'll have to rate me in the comment section. Let me know how you thought my Scottish accent was. But how inspiring is that kind of quote? I, I think that speaks to so many people, both Christians and non-Christians alike. As a matter of fact, as we look at the history of Israel in the Old Testament, we see that there's a similar concern for the ancient Israelites. This concern about freedom about freedom to, to own and possess their land as a country, as individuals, to prosper economically, and to have even a, an element of individual freedom. And yet what we'll also see as we study the Old Testament is that Israel often forfeited that outward freedom through inward spiritual disobedience. You see, unlike a worldly perspective of freedom, which is focused externally and outwardly, and therefore it looks, if there's a problem, if there's a lack of freedom, outwardly and externally, people tend to look for outward external causes, such as, well, let's try a new system of government, or we need to change this law or that law or get this person out and put that person in. But that's not the focus of the Bible. That's not the focus even of the Old Testament. What we see as a whole is that the cause, the actual cause of Israel's loss of outward external freedom is because of inward spiritual disobedience. As a matter of fact, the Lord himself codifies that this will be the case in the terms of the covenant of Moses. The covenant is, if you will love me, if you will love me first from the heart, if you will love the Lord your God, with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, if you will love me, if you will obey me spiritually, inwardly, then I will bless you outwardly. You have peace with your enemies. Your, your crops will grow. You'll do well financially. You'll have houses and vineyards and, and many children. So we see a principle in the Old Testament that outward external freedom and flourishing is contingent upon inward, internal, spiritual obedience. As we turn now to the Gospel of John, chapter 8, verses 31 through 36, this is the very idea that Jesus is bringing firmly into focus. And I know for many of us, it is so easy to be like the world, to be like those who don't know God, 
They do not have salvation in Christ. And therefore, it is not as though they do not have a notion of freedom. For from the movies, we can know that everybody does have some sense of freedom. But they will never have freedom from a divine perspective unless they come to God through Christ. And we have Christ presented to us, of course, in the Bible, in the Word of God. And so what I want to do this morning is talk about what is true freedom? In what does true freedom actually consist? And so I want to make three points this morning from this text. And first point that's going to be based on verses 31 through 32 is this. It is the gospel of Jesus Christ that sets people free. Number one, it is the gospel of Jesus Christ that sets people free. Look at verses 31 through 32. It says, therefore, Jesus said to the ones who were believing, the Jews who were believing in him, let's pause there for a moment. This might seem kind of a shock because in just a moment, Jesus is going to engage in this argument with this very same group. And the group comes back with a very sort of sharp rebuttal at Jesus, kind of trying to flip the tables on Jesus. But pay attention to who the text says these people are. These were Jews who the text says were believing. So we have to pause and ask ourselves, in what way were they believing? Now, we have to be careful because not all apparent belief is true belief. Not all apparent belief is true belief. People can say, oh, yes, I believe in God. Oh, yes, I can believe in Jesus. But that doesn't mean they believe from the heart. Now, you might say, well, how do I know? What's the difference between apparent belief and true belief from the heart? Well, it's the matter of fact, is actually quite simple. It is continued obedience to God's word. Continued obedience to God's word. When you see that people who are apparently believing come to the word of God and at some point they say, no, I'm not going to believe that. I'm not going to do that. I'm going to reject that. I'll accept the parts of scripture that uh, I like and that I agree with is authoritative, but all the scriptures I don't like and don't agree with, those are not authoritative. Well, then it's not God you believe, it's yourself. And so that's what we have here. We have a group of people who apparently only believe superficially. And it's probably because at this point, they were believing that Jesus was going to be a political messiah. He's going to be a messiah that sees us as the righteous because we're fellow citizens, we're fellow Israelites, we're from the same country, same ethnic group, we're the same people, and you're going to set us free from the Romans. And if that's who Jesus was, then they were believing in him. But when they started to get the idea that Jesus is not that kind of Messiah, he's not the kind of Messiah you think. And again, it's not as though Jesus will not ultimately bring in a kingdom that in a sense is political. He will. But notice that that is secondary to Jesus and his ministry. Number one is the matter of the heart. Because for Jesus, if someone is not made right with God in their hearts, they cannot participate in the political messianic kingdom of God. They would be on the outside. So Jesus was saying to the Jews who apparently believed, if you are abiding or remaining in my word, then you are truly my disciples. So again, Jesus was never content with drawing superficial crowds to himself. Now, 
Unlike many churches today, where people's intentional goal is to superficially draw people to Jesus. That is, tell people the stuff that's easy and nice and conforms to their image, and then build a church around that and never rock the boat and tell them all the stuff Jesus said that, that they won't like. Many people are content with building a superficial church. Notice Jesus wasn't. Jesus was not okay with gathering crowds who had false expectations, who only wanted Jesus for his goodies, for the stuff that he could give them, the food in their tummies. Jesus was never okay with that. And he would always follow up that those superficial crowds coming to him with a hard and difficult word, a word that called them to count the cost of discipleship. And that is what Jesus is doing here to this group of Jews who, on the surface, to this point, seem like they believe. But Jesus puts forward the criteria of discipleship. If you truly are abiding in my word, so that's the test. Do you continually, present tense, ongoing, do you continually abide in my word? We talked about this last week as we studied Acts 2.42. The early church, it said, and they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. This is a test of discipleship. Not that you heard the word of God one day, 10 years ago, but that you continue to hear the word of God every week, every day, and you continue to do it and make it a part of your life. Jesus says the ones who remain in his word, those are the ones who are truly his disciples, not just the ones who say they believe. Verse 32, now Jesus follows this up and he says, and you will know the truth, future tense, you will in the future know the truth and the truth will in the future set you free. So notice that these verbs are in the future. He's pointing to a future time. And you might think, well, why isn't he saying about now? You, you could know it now. And it's probably because the gospel message was not going to be fully comprehended until after Jesus died on the cross and rose again from the dead. I think we can be fairly confident that's what Jesus is referring to and why he's using a future tense, because even his own disciples, whom we know are true disciples, so Peter, James, John, the Twelve, for example, even they did not understand who Jesus was, what Messiahship actually meant until after Jesus died and after he rose again. It was only then. And so Jesus says, you will in the future know the truth. And notice, it's not truth. It's not a truth. It is definite article, the, the truth. You will in the future know the truth. Capital T, friends. It is the truth that sets people free. You know, for many of us, we're content with giving out a little bit of truth. Now, again, to be sure, there's no excuse for ever giving out lies to people. Even if we think telling a lie brings about some earthly temporal good. For us, lying, falsehood, never an option. 
Even if you think the ends justifies the means, it doesn't. We don't tell lies. We don't tell falsehoods. But also notice this. This is probably more tempting for us as Christians today who live in this world and are therefore affected by what's going on in the world, including a loss of temporal external freedom. What we're tempted to do is shrink the gospel away from capital T truth, away from the definite article truth, and we're tempted to give little truth, a truth. Hey, here's a little truth about Proposition 109. Here's a little truth about this political thing. Hey, here's a little truth about economics. For many of us, rather than preaching the truth, the only truth that sets people free, we're thinking to ourselves, gosh, I'm so annoyed and upset and angry and fearful about this external loss of freedom I'm experiencing, and I'm just going to give out this little, little tiny truth thing that might help this. Maybe I can get some people to believe this little truth thing. And if they believe the little truth, then this gets fixed, and then I'm more comfortable. But friends, not to say we can't do that, but it is to say we must not. We cannot exchange little truths, little earthly temporal truths for the truth. Because it is only the truth. What is that? The truth of the gospel. The truth of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It is only the truth of Jesus Christ that sets people free. And so, friends, we have to embrace this reality with all of our hearts. If you or I deep down believe that some other truth saves, the truth of this political agenda, the truth of this economic theory, the truth of this candidate for political office, if we start to believe that's the gospel, that's the truth that sets people free, then we will abandon the one and only thing that can actually set people free, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so number one for us today, it is the gospel that sets people free. Any other message fails to meet man's fundamental need. Number two, unbelievers always have a deficient view of freedom. Verse 33, listen to that again. Number two, unbelievers always have a deficient view of freedom. Let's look at verse 33. They answered to him, so that is the apparent believing Jews who Jesus is going to confront. He's going to confront their superficial faith with a challenge of discipleship. They respond. They respond to him, we are seeds of Abraham. We are Abraham's seed. We are the heirs of Abraham. We are Israelites. And we have never been enslaved to anyone. How can you say that you will set us free? Now notice that they are offended. They are offended. And let me tell you something. Enslaved people who think they are free will be offended by the suggestion that they are slaves. People who are slaves who think they are free will be offended at the suggestion that they are slaves. And we're seeing that happen. So it's being revealed that this group of apparent believing Jews were not really believing. And they are offended at the suggestion that they are slaves. Now, why is it that they were so offended? 
Probably a variety of things. Uh, number one, they could be thinking, again, externally and politically. The Jews at this time had a relative degree of freedom. We see that they have their temple, they're worshiping in their temple, they're able to study the scriptures, they're able to eat kosher meals. They actually have a relative degree of freedom. And so they might say to themselves, we're, we're living mostly a free life. Now, to be sure, they are under occupation. The Romans are ultimately their overseers, their masters. And yet, certainly compared to other times in Israel's history, the Romans at this particular historical moment are granting the Jews a special kind of freedom. They have freedom of religion. They are, have freedom of conscience to worship God and to observe the customs of their ancestors. So it might be an offense at the idea that it, their social status is feeling threatened. Another one, again, is simply spiritual pride. The idea would be, no, we are Israelites, and we're, we observe the, the laws of Moses. We're, we're doing these things, and we're, we're studying Torah, and, and we think the more we study it, we'll, we'll inherit a life through the work of study by the labor of our own study. And so they are offended. Now, notice once again that Unbelievers always have a deficient view of freedom. That is because sin warps our sense of freedom. We have no idea what spiritual freedom even looks like. The best thing people can understand apart from God is earthly freedom. It is external, outward freedom. That is why a movie like The Patriot or Braveheart appeals to a wide audience, both believing and unbelieving, religious and secular alike. Because the natural man, apart from the Spirit of God, cannot understand true spiritual freedom. They don't understand it. They don't even know their need for it. But what they can understand is what outward external oppression looks like. They can know how uncomfortable and even painful it is when our outward external freedoms to do the kinds of things we would like to do and go to the kinds of places we would like to go with the kind of people we would like to do with, when those things are, are threatened, then we, we can certainly, anyone, can sense that and respond in an angry sort of way. So they are offended at this notion. And we have to understand that every notion of freedom, every philosophical understanding of freedom that has ever been given in the history of the world, every sense of freedom that many people today naturally feel is deficient. It's not to say it's entirely wrong. There can be, by the grace of God, things in their deficient view of freedom that may happen to be right. But what we're suggesting is apart from God, who alone grants true freedom and who alone reveals man's greatest need and where the problem really lies, all we can do is have deficient views of freedom. And so you see here in this verse that they do not understand. How can you say that we don't have freedom? Because freedom for us is defined outwardly and externally through Abraham, through our status in him. But, it's, but our third and final point this morning is this. The greatest threat to external freedom is internal slavery to sin. Let me say that again. Point number three. The greatest threat to external freedom, freedom out there, is internal slavery to sin. Verses 34 through 36. 
And Jesus answered them, Amen, amen. Truly, truly, I say to you that everyone who is doing sin is a slave of sin. Notice where Jesus locates the problem of freedom. Notice where he locates it. Not out there. Not in a political system. Not in an economic system. Not in a political figure. He doesn't locate it outwardly and externally. He locates it here. There. Right within your own heart. The greatest threat, not only to Jesus' audience who's challenging him at this moment, because to them the real threat is outward, but even to us today, as we look out into the world and we see what's going on, is I look out into the world and see what's going on, is I look out and see what's going on in the United States of America, and I see all kinds of, of sin and evil, and I not only do I see it, I see a trajectory of more evil, and it's impacting me and my wife and my kids and my church, my brothers and sisters, and my brothers and sisters in the great, greater body of Christ, as well as my fellow citizens in the United States and the, the generations to come. I see all that, and I, like everyone, am tempted to locate the real battle for freedom out there and to say they're the real threat or that's the real threat. But that's not what Jesus does. It's not what the Bible does. The Bible says the greatest external threat, the greatest threat to external liberty and freedom is internal slavery to sin. Look at what Jesus says here. Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, the one doing sin is a slave of sin. The real problem from which all other problems in the world stem is the inward, internal, deep-seated, fundamental problem of sin and rebellion against God. This is the problem, friends. Too many people are content with addressing the symptoms of slavery rather than the disease. Jesus is not a superficial doctor. He doesn't just give a, a, pet, a peck on, on a wound and leaving the person to fester. Instead, Jesus is pouring ointment. He's pouring peroxide on the wound. He wants to get to the infection. He wants to get deep down into the root of the problem. And it is a problem of the human heart. Sin has permeated every single human heart. And therefore, no matter what external systems, governments, structures, economic theories, cultural theories, and practices, no matter what, unless we address that there is a fundamental problem of sin in the heart, all systems are subject to decay and slavery, all of them. Now, to be sure, would I say some are better than others? Yes, I would. Would I say some external systems and authorities and structures and theories uh, will, will prolong freedom externally in a society? Oh, most definitely I would. But at the end of the day, we should learn the lesson of Old Testament Israel. You'll notice time and time again, outward external freedom was always a precarious situation. 
It never lasted. Oh, they had good moments. They had golden days that they could look back on and say, oh, you remember when we had this freedom? Remember when he had all this grain and all this wine and we weren't fighting with everybody and people were relatively getting along and working? Do you remember that Israel had those golden days? But you'll notice in the Old Testament, they never last. And the reason the Bible gives is not the reason that everybody else gives. Many people say, well, it's because they, they picked this king instead of that king. It's because they, 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 they wanted to do this instead of that. They shouldn't have made you know, an alliance with that group. It should have been this group. You know what the Bible says? It's because they forsook the Lord. It's because instead of loving the Lord their God with all their heart, mind, soul, and strength, they began to love themselves. They began to love their material prosperity. They began to love and trust in their own intellect, their own ability, and their own even national history. They began to trust in themselves, but the problem is, that is exactly the root of the problem. Trusting in ourselves. The problem of sin is, we need a savior. The problem of sin is that is so deep down, no one can set us free. No one can grant us freedom. We cannot grant freedom to ourselves. We need God through the gospel message to save us. And so Jesus says that he answered to them, truly anyone who sins is a slave to sin. And he goes on to give this, this picture, this analogy of, of a slave being in a master's house and a son. And probably this is in reference back to Abraham. They're claiming to be Abraham's descendants. But you'll remember, Abraham had two sons. A point that Paul will make in Galatians. One, the son of the slave woman, Ishmael through Hagar. The other, the son of the promise through Sarah. He had two sons. And notice Jesus follows this up and he says, The servant or the slave does not remain in the house forever, but the son remains forever. Now this is important because some translations say, but a son remains forever. That's not what the Greek says. The Greek has the definite article. It doesn't say a son. This is to be clear. Jesus is not talking about any son. He is talking about himself. It says, the son, definite article, the son remains forever. There is one and only one true son. It is the son, the seed of Abraham, the true seed of Abraham, Jesus Christ. He is the son that abides. He is the only one that can set a slave free so that they too become adopted sons in God's household. He said, you know that you are Abraham's seeds. And yet, or excuse me, and that is where he says, therefore, the one whom the Son of Man sets free will be free indeed. Who is the one who has true and lasting freedom? The one Jesus Christ sets free. What is the nation or the culture who can be set free from slavery and ultimately to preserve even outward external freedom? Who is going to preserve that? Where can we find such security? Only he whom the Son is set free. The nation who calls upon the Lord. The nation that seeks Christ. The nation that acknowledges its need for him. That trusts in nothing else but Jesus Christ and his righteousness. The nation that sees that the ultimate root of the problem is the human heart. And only God can save sinners from their sins. 
On this 4th of July weekend, the Bible says that it is only Christians who are truly free. Everyone else, at best, can experience temporal and perishing outward freedom. All others, like unbelieving Israel, are focused on the symptoms of slavery rather than the disease. The church has been given the one and only true message of freedom that comes with the power of freedom, and that is forgiveness of sins through the blood of Jesus Christ. So friends, on this 4th of July, as our unbelieving fellow citizens celebrate outward external freedom, which we're all thankful for, yet let us be the ones the only ones whom the Bible says are truly set free. Go forward this week with the message of true and lasting freedom, the freedom that the world needs, the freedom that this country needs, the only freedom that can save, not just for today, but forever. The only inward, true and lasting freedom that will one day when Christ returns, usher in forever everlasting external freedom to match the internal freedom that only Christ can give. Let us be heralders. That is my prayer. We would become preachers, proclaimers of the only gospel that saves. For whom the Son sets free will be free indeed. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you and praise you for your goodness, for your mercy, and for your truth. Lord, we thank you that you have saved us. Lord, not with a superficial message that comes one day, offers temporal freedom, gives us some moments of enjoyment, but that leaves us bankrupt inwardly. Lord, we thank you. You have come to us with the gospel of Jesus Christ. We thank you that he whom the Son sets free is free indeed. Lord, though we were slaves of sin, yet if we have professed Christ as Savior, then we are free. Adopted sons and daughters, no matter what the world does, our freedom can never be taken, for it has been secured in the everlasting blood of Jesus Christ. Lord, I just pray if anyone is joining with us today or watching later who does not have inward freedom, they value freedom, they see Braveheart and, and the Patriot and they look back on history and they, they value and they appreciate external freedom. And yet they recognize that all external freedom is ruined by people who are slaves of sin, always. And Lord, you've moved upon their hearts this morning through the preaching of the word. And they've recognized they are slaves of sin. They are sinners. They've fallen short of your glory. No matter what things happen externally, they remain a slave. And they know, they sense, they feel, and now by the Spirit welcome the true freedom that is in Christ. Lord, for them we pray, set them free. Lord, we pray you would put faith into their hearts so that they can speak with their mouth. I believe that Jesus Christ is Lord, and from their hearts profess that God has raised them from the dead. For as Romans 10.9 tells us, if they can do this, if they confess with their mouth and believe with their heart, they will be saved. They will be set free. Lord, we pray for us as we live within this culture, and we are tremendously, tremendously grateful 
to live in the United States. We are tremendously grateful for the many freedoms we enjoy that most people in most of history, even in the world today, have never had the honor to enjoy. But Lord, we pray that we would be responsible with our external blessings. Lord, we pray we would never take external freedom or material prosperity and selfishly use it for sinful purposes. But rather, since we've been set free in Christ, we pray we would use the external freedom and prosperity we've been given to get the message of the gospel and freedom of Christ out to the lost and dying world. Lord, help us to use our freedom to help see others set free. Lord, set us free from any slavery to sin that remains in our hearts, where we want to use, we're tempted to use our external freedom and material prosperity to serve ourselves, to seek our own desires, and not to seek Christ and his gospel. Lord, set us free from any remaining slavery to sin, so that we are fully free like the early church, to give everything that we have in service of the gospel. We just ask for your blessing now on your people, on our church, over our family and friends, and over our country. For the name and glory of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Now, before we go and you enjoy your beautiful 4th of July day, just a couple of announcements before we go. Again, for those of you that would like to worship the Lord through giving to the church in tithes and offerings, there's a couple of ways you can do that. Uh, first, you can go onto our website, which is imagechurchoc.com, and you're able to give there by clicking on the giving tab up at the top. For those of you that prefer to mail in a tither offering, you can do that to our church mailing address, which is 27762 Antonio Parkway. That's L is in Larry 514, and that's Ladera Ranch, California 92694. Again, all that information is on our website, imagechurchoc.com. Again, we have a Wednesday night midweek Bible study, so we're continuing to sit under the waterfall of grace, which is God's word. And so we're continuing through the book of Exodus. So I highly recommend it's seven o'clock Pacific Daylight Time if you're able to join us for the teaching of God's word in the Old Testament. Of course, coming up this next Sunday is our first of our weekly services. So July 11th, next Sunday, we'll be meeting every Sunday in person. And I would just encourage you to pour your heart into attending church. Make it a ministry. Make it your mission. Discipline yourself. Put yourself under the waterfall of grace and come be a part of a movement of God. I know many of you just like me, I don't want to just attend church. I want to be a part of a movement of God. And friends, you know how that happens? Through disciplined obedience to the word of God, to making God's people and the gathering of the saints and the fellowship of the ministry a priority. So I would encourage you to meet us there. If you're able to join us at 10 a.m. for our prayer meeting pre-service, we would love for you to join us as we pray for the power of God over our service. But for those of you that can't make it to the prayer meeting, please join us promptly at 10.30 a.m. as we get this new season off to an, a tremendous start because we want to see the lost saved, people who are in slavery to sin, come to Christ, and we want to see the Lord add to the church daily those who are being saved. So let's use this as a new day, a new opportunity to set forth Christ as our greatest good. Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, 
in order that you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. God bless you, everyone. Have a wonderful and enjoyable 4th of July. Please be safe, drive carefully, and we look forward to seeing you real soon. God bless you all.